Welcome to the Thematic Investors Podcast, powered by Vidrio Financial. Vidrio Financial is proud to support the Thematic Investors Podcast with host Kieran Kavana. Vidrio helps allocators harness the investment complexity to make better allocation decisions. Learn more at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. Welcome to the Thematic Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Kavana of Old Farm Partners. Our goal is to bring you great investors and the themes they are working on. Some are under the radar, and we think they're all experts in their disciplines. This podcast is sponsored by Vidrio Financial. Lucky for us, we have one of the best European investors I know uh, to talk to today, Stuart Mitchell, who runs the eponymous SW Mitchell in London. Stuart has an outstanding long-term record in European equities, uh, I've known Stuart for a few years, and his curiosity is and passion for investing is instantly palpable. He's put together a long and impressive investment record, and today has a very strong view on where he thinks European stocks can go. Welcome, Stuart. Hi there. Very good to see you, Kieran. So a short version of uh, Stuart's background, he set up his firm in 2005. And prior to that, he was head of special situation equities at J.O. Hambro, where he managed the Charlemagne Fund. <laughs> Running both a long-only and long-short strategy, he had a very strong performance record. His long-only fund at Hambro was up 133% over his tenure, with European indices basically flat. Um, he spent 35 years investing in uh, European stocks. He's born in Scotland and educated at St. Andrews, uh, where he studied medieval history, which I'm sure we're actually we're going to touch on a bit. <laughs> Um, so, Stuart, maybe you could talk a little bit about your background a little bit more and how you got to this point in your career and why you do what you do. Great. Well, thank you very much, Kieran. This, again, my side, what an honor to be on your podcast. Thank you very much for asking me to talk. I mean, I guess rather than rather than really running through my career, I think there are two or three for me really important moments and um, experiences which I had, which have brought me to the place, brought me to where I am today. And the first was as a, as a young, um, straight out of university in Scotland, coming down to London. I was very lucky to to work with John Armitage, who um, you, you, I think you know well, um, and many of your listeners will know well of Edgerton Capital. And I sat right beside John for seven or eight years before he, before he went to set up his own business. And for me, that was an extraordinary experience because I was really able to work with a master, a fabulous investor. And what he drilled into me was just the value of unemotional very thorough analytical research. And also, John uh, was great at making you think a lot about balance sheet strength and uh, goodwill and the ability of a company to go through difficult times. I think the second thing for me, Kieran, that was very important was um, I was very fortunate to, after I left Morgan Grenfell, to be a partner at J.O. Hambro, and we, had a, and we had an extraordinary few years. And we sold the business to Credit Suisse, and they offered us a very generous price. But I knew, always knew that I would never be able to generate the kinds of returns I generated in the past if I was within a large organization. And, uh, and we all know about it, all of us who've been in, you know, working in big firms. In the end, the bureaucracy, the controls, the procedures, the politics just overwhelms you. So I knew that I had to set up my own business. And I knew I had to set up my own business in a way which would give us the best possible chance of, um, of, achieving, of achieving great returns. And, and I think maybe just as a last kind of introductory point, it might, might be worth just saying one or two things about how we tried to shape, how we tried to set up the office. And um, and it seemed to me over time that, you know, the way you've got a chance of doing this is by being able to spend 99% of your 
of uh, of every second thinking about the portfolio and thinking about new ideas but also creating an atmosphere where there's not too much emotion there's not too much um as it were there's not too much um uh you know when markets go up people get euphoric and markets go down people get depressed and so we made a decision right at the very beginning not to have any traders in house but to but to and that and, and we deal with um we do all through a computer system we deal with the group down the road so all you have in our little office here are eight fund managers and analysts who are thinking the whole time about stocks and i think that's um and we're a group of people again who work together our whole lives i mean most of us work together now for 30 years so i think we've um we, we've really tried to create a, a kind of a you know, an environment, a culture, which will give us the best possible chance of generating great returns. Before we jump into the ideas that you're investing in, I know overall you're very bullish, as bullish as I've ever seen you. And maybe you could talk about your overall view on European equities at this point. And I know you've said after 35 years, this is the cheapest uh, Europe has has ever been and particularly the things you're investing in maybe you could touch on the top and before we get into some of the individual ideas great so 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 Karen, it's um as we've talked about before the, the context is quite an unusual one for europe because of course we've had this uh, period of falling interest rates and um and we've had this uh, rush of money into the technology sector and into growth companies and growth companies e- even with modest long-term growth expectations have Gone up to valuations which we've which we've never seen before, and and of course, you you know how these things develop. It's a begin beginning companies get to reasonable valuations and they, and they discount a new level of interest rates, but of course, um, what normally happens and what we think has happened this time is we've had this extraordinary bubble that's been built up, and we've seen companies with really modest modest growth prospects go to extraordinarily stretched valuations, and particularly in the technology sector, we've seen some of the flimsiest business plans and the most unlikely companies to succeed commanding extraordinary valuations. And um, and of course, that's, that, that kind of, Europe kind of gets left left behind in a context like this because, um, you know, we have a, clearly we have great technology companies, but it's a very small part of our index. Uh, we have great growth companies, but again, it's quite a small part of our market compared to America. And I think I'm right in saying that American index is about 30% technology in Europe, it's around about five. So it's a completely different, a very different shape of market. And of course, our, our, our market, as you would expect, is dominated by old economy. It's pharmaceuticals, it's oil and gas, it's banks and it's utilities. So so we've been, our market has been progressively derated. But, but it's very interesting what you say, um, Kieran, about it being, um, being, a, being an unusual time and uh, valuations being as low as they ever have been. Because normally when we've had valuations like this, it's been after a shock. So the first Gulf War, and which I remember very well, and or going back to um, going back to Y2K, or going back into the Russian default, um, you know, there was a moment when European um, equities derated, but they they tended to rush back up to more normal valuations again. This is so unusual because it's uh, it's now a very prolonged uh, period of derating, and the discount against other markets has um, is as wide as it ever has been, and it's endured, which is really unusual. So, 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 just to give you some kind of an idea, um, I mean, the trouble trouble with this looking at markets as a whole, of course, is that there are different markets have different shapes, and there's more technology, more growth, and this, that, whatever. But if you just look at the European market compared to the US, it trades at about a 65% discount on price to book, and price to book's a really nice thing because it's at the end of the day, you know, book value is what really matters, doesn't it? And um, 
and people can do whatever they like to their earnings and the cycle can make their earnings look good in the short term not so good not so good in the short term but again book value is the real should be the real value of a business particularly quoted companies which tend to be reasonably dominant and and have a franchise which should should endure so 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 even if i adjust um for looking at um you know the american market there's more in technology and i adjust and i do same sector weightings the discount is still about 50% it's very 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 significant and um and of course, there are all sorts of. We'll probably go into this more uh, later on. You know, the European economy hasn't grown quite as quickly as the U.S. economy, and and of course, everything's been happening in the U.S. economy with with um, Alphabet and, and with these, some of these great technological innovations of the last few years. But again, it's still, it's kind of striking the discount is so big, and I think maybe for us the um, and because we can cut it and look at it all sorts of different ways. But I think for us. We, the most striking thing, perhaps, is that when we compare our companies with the best companies in the rest of the world, in the past, they used to train roughly pari-passu, and particularly the larger, very well-known companies. And now, more than often, they'll be trading at 30 to 60% discounts. And that's really, really, really unusual. So it won't be explained by growth rates. It won't be explained by levels of profitability. It'll be more to do with It'll be more to do with that it's you know that companies which are trading in a market which is very out of favor, and uh, and of course the you know the flip side of it in America there's just so much interest there's so much money flowing into technology and growth that uh, that those those stocks have perhaps been overly favored. I mean we maybe, can sorry sorry, sorry go ahead Stuart but maybe can just as one kind of last kind of throwaway I mean I you know, we we can do it right across whether we compare one of our banks, our best banks, or one of your best banks, and the discount will be fifty percent, and the profitability will be very similar. The growth rates will be similar. Our pharmaceutical companies again, they'll be trading at half the valuation. The profitability growth rates will be very similar. Maybe the most striking because you can compare them pretty directly. Are the are the great oil and gas companies, right. and and I know we we got all sorts of criticisms of the way BP's been run in the past, but it isn't that much less profitable than Chevron and Exxon. It it hasn't you know it isn't growing really any more slowly. It's perhaps investing a bit more in alternative energy, which you might argue is um, a capital which will be squandered. But a sixty percent discount we just find so extreme. Right. I mean, I think and I think people listening to this understand the technology focus in the U.S. and um, but it is extraordinary to have like for likes trading at such a big discount at a time. Don't you think also when there's a lot of uh, shifts going on in the world to be, you know, and we'll get into this a little bit, but certainly um, what has benefited probably more than any area has been globalization, these kind of technology companies. And you're seeing a significant shift in that theme for after a long time. So, you know, but you touched on energy right there. Do you mind going through a little bit more on energy? I know Noble Corp yeah. is one of your biggest positions right now. Um, you've talked a bit about how um why don't we talk about energy first and then i want to talk a little bit yeah. about the eu so um i mean energy of course is fascinating and it's um the way we think of it is um all these kinds of sectors whether it's energy whether it's um whether it's basic materials it's kind of uh the experience of those industries is really the flip side of what you've seen in technology and growth so we've had this extraordinary level of investment in technology and of course, there's only a certain amount of savings in order to be able to. So, so, so the at the expense of um, all that money has gone to technology. Some of those more older economy um, industries have been starved of capital, and the numbers are kind of startling. So, if you were to look at copper or 
or um, iron ore or oil, then the level of capex over the last 10 years is about half what it was in the previous previous 10 years. And of course, oil is this whole thing has been turbocharged. So the first, of course, is it's just been very difficult. You know, if you're a oil and gas company trading on four times earnings, why the hell would you raise equity capital? It'd be diluted if you just wouldn't do it. So it's been very hard for them to raise equity capital. So they've cut back on on investment, and and of and of course that has that um, that that uh, that uh, that extraordinary impact of of you start to your, your depreciation starts to be less than your than your capital employed. So so you you have less kind of you, your your capital base is beginning to fall at a time, of course, when when growth is continue is is continuing to advance, and um, but 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 of course the other turbocharging thing in our little industry and in oil and gas is is we have not so much in the US, but we have a very powerful green lobby in Europe. And there's a really kind of um, almost fanatic move to go to um, you know, to electric vehicles and other forms of energy. And, and of course, that's meant that um, people running these large oil and gas groups have been under tremendous political pressure to curb investment and to put it into alternative energy. And I think you once, um, when we met, Kieran said to me that you've heard so many people come into your office and they've Try to tell you what the oil price is going to do, and it's you know it's a kind of it's a mugs game. It's extraordinarily difficult, but I think what we can say is that demand is likely to rise a bit more quickly than most people think, and that's all to do with we think there'll be kind of a jave curve in the move to alternative energy, just because where we are at the moment, and perhaps something we can talk about later, with where interest rates are today, and with the costs of buying things like wind turbines. It's basically just unless you've got massive government subsidies, there's no way you're going to invest in those technologies. And our guess is that oil and glass demand will be quite a lot higher in the short term than many yeah. think. But the one thing we can be absolutely sure of is the amount of supply, and supply just ain't going to grow. And um, I mean, the majors are if they are investing, it's basically keeping production at also you know at stable levels. And um, there'll be one or two perhaps like BP who have seen a bit of production growth, but that relates to their history. Um, but uh, but again, it's for the industry as a whole, it's basically flat. So we should see quite a tight market. We should see the oil price, 80, 90, 100, $100 barrel. And at that level, in our view, our stocks are a total steal. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, given uh, depletion rates, plus less capex. I mean, it's not even even uh, someone who can do arithmetic like me understands that. So, um, you know, what one thing that's interesting about, you know, touched on a little bit on, the EV push in Europe is, um, I'd love for your view on this, is that it seems like the European Union is, ever since COVID, has been far more united in how they act. And I mean, COVID response, Ukraine war response, certainly, I think is a big one. I remember you wrote a piece about how the world is, how Europe is having its Hamiltonian moment. And I think I understood that because I'm a Hamilton fan, that it was a federalization or centralization type of um, action. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, um, I have to be quite careful because at times I got a little bit too, perhaps over enthusiastic about this. And it seemed to me that the um, the recovery fund was really quite an important milestone because it's basically a trillion euros of capital, which is um, which is going to be financed by by the ECB. So it's going to be which is basically effectively jointly financed by the by the European Union, which is an extraordinary move forward because in the past, of course, it's always been individual states issuing bonds and coming together to do some kind of a program, and 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 a trillion, you know, it's quite a meaningful amount of money, particularly um, because. 
know, half of that money will be redirected towards the two of the weaker economies, Spain and Italy. So it really has quite a should have quite a dramatic impact. I mean, there's all sorts of problems you'll know about um, about the various schemes and the way the money is going to be spent in Italy and the approval process. And there's been delays, but it should add three or four percent to each of those economies. So it's quite important. I mean, our hope is, Kieran, that it's just the beginning and that the next stage we have some kind of, we think there could be another trillion, which could be an infrastructure fund, pan-European fund, pan-European, which will be financed by you know, ECB, which basically is European, all the European states coming together. I mean, it's not overt, it's kind of covert, but it, it is, we're well on the way to, to, um, to, to, um, to, to I guess, you know, mutualization of debt happening. Um, but I think it's really interesting, your second point about a war. I mean, we um, as historians, we always think, you know, what is it that brings countries together? And normally it's a threat of invasion and whether it was, um, you know, whether it was England coming together into one country, you know, all the different separate kingdoms because of the threat of the Vikings or similar arguments up in Scotland or um, or whether it was Europe coming together because of the fear of France being invaded by Germany and the fear of Germany invading France again. So, so our guess is that um, is that Ukraine should move this, should help move all this forward, and uh, and we really need to come come together. Particularly if we, um, you know, if Trump becomes president, there are all sorts of questions around, you know, NATO and you know what will NATO look like, and and whether NATO really will come, and whether America really will come and support us if there's further aggression in our eastern borders. So, so our hope is it's the beginning of something. Uh, something which will um which will uh maybe not become like the united states but we'll be coming closer together and uh and that that should be that should stimulate growth it should stimulate economic growth it's it's so interesting and and as a quick aside i can't tell you how many uh good investors great investors i know who are history history people to some degree and i know you're medieval it's interesting that's all that could be another podcast too um but you know maybe maybe it's a good segue into defense spending i mean how do you think because i know europe is actually has i mean it's subtle i mean people think of the us as uh dominating defense but europe has a very robust defense uh industry across uh especially germany and france and england so maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how you think things play out in that industry yeah. It's such a great question, Kieran. So we've um, we've been thinking a lot about this because, of course, you know, there's this Russian act of aggression, and we have a whole lot of defence stocks, and we had to think very quickly: should we are these are these interesting investment opportunities? And um, it was actually one of uh, it was a subject of one of our thought pieces, and we got together various generals, and we got together various leading civil servants, and we got together from the, the head of MI5, and other very interesting people to, to debate and to think about this question. And um, it's quite difficult. I mean, our conclusions, we're, we're not sure. So, um, so of course, we have this active aggression from Russia. Will that stimulate extra defense spending? It may well do in the shorter term. But does it mean that we, um, does it mean that Europe moves to a structural level of higher level of defense spending? And we're not totally sure. So we have this target of 2%, as you know, of um, our GDP spending. And, um, and we're still below that for many European countries. Now, do we, do, does this war, and does uh, and does you know if we have a Trump becoming president, does that mean that we move very rapidly to two percent or above two percent? Again, we're not totally sure. And um, and, and why are we not totally sure? Well, it's just you know fifty nine years old, and having you know experienced European politics, it's um, 
you know, the, the amounts of money are very, very significant. And there are all sorts of welfare programs. And it's really hard to find, you know, areas of spending to cut in order to replace defense spending. So our guess is that we might move somewhere near to 2%. But does that really mean that we're going to be a structurally, the industry is going to be growing faster than um, it has done in the past? We're not sure. It has done in the short term, but we're not sure. I think the other question, Kieran, which you raise, which is so interesting, is um, where the hell does money go? I mean, our guess is if there is extra spending in Europe, probably 70% of it will go to America. Wow. And why the hell is that? I mean, the, I mean, the, 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 there are two reasons. The first is it's a kind of a quid pro quo. It's the um, I mean, America spends a very significant part of its uh, budget on defense and clearly is the main partner in NATO. The kind of the deal is if we're going to only pay one half, two percent, most of our orders should go to American companies. But but I think there's something perhaps more important and real than that is that that American America basically holds the cutting edge tech technology in most areas. So we have a very reasonable fighter jet, but we don't have a stealth jet yet. And um, and and you know both Dassault and both um, you know the the Typhoon are very reasonable jets, and they probably perhaps traded a discount to to what you could buy in America, but not obvious if you were uh, making that decision that you would go for the European option rather than the American option. And, um, and of course, there are all sorts of interesting deals, and it's combined with whether you'll take F-35 orders. Um, so, so, I mean, our guess is there's some great areas of expertise, like submarine technology, where we have leadership, like missiles, like radar technology, and we do very well in that. But outside that, it's the, the world that's really dominated by America. Wow. Um, I, I, you know, I know a lot of this, <laughs> your thinking stems from bottom up thinking as well as top down. And you do a lot of these top down pieces. I mean, why do you do big top down pieces? I mean, I thought you wrote one on hydrogen that was really, really impressive. And, and your conclusion was not absolutely, we need to go long these things. I mean, do you do, does this drive some of your thinking at times? I mean, does it really help you as an investor? It really does, Karen, because we, um, when I chatted at the beginning a bit about, you know, the way we do things and how we try to create this group of us, eight of us here, and we don't have traders, and it's very calm, and we try to be as unemotional as we can, so we can make, we think, the best, best possible decisions. And and everything we do is kind of looking at areas where, you know, perhaps people aren't looking at, or areas which are perhaps unliked. And, um, and of course, those kind of areas, there tends to be uh, really a very limited amount of, of research out there that you can either buy or that you can perhaps access through the brokers. So so we really do pretty much everything ourselves. So all the work on oil and gas, we've really done ourselves. And, and hydrogen, again, was a very interesting one, Kieran, that we worked on. It was right at the very beginning because, you know, there was a you know, change, and particularly with COVID, there was the acceleration towards alternative ways of, of, um, alternative way, alternative of energy sources. And so we thought we really should make sense of and try to get down to do some work in hydrogen. We couldn't really find anything out there. So we um, so we, we did a lot of work and we had two or three of us involved in that. And I mean, the challenge with hydrogen is, of course, it's uh, it's it's kind of a crazy energy, really, because you've got to have the electricity in the first place to, to split the water to get the hydrogen. And, um, and okay, that, that's kind of fine in a way. You can... Where it would make sense is it could be if you could store surplus... Um, solar energy uh, or wind capacity generated over the day, if you can store it, then if you can have a hydrogen site, so place like in Spain or in Italy, it could work out. So you could perhaps crack the hydrogen, but it's very expensive. It's a very inefficient method. You have to put in a lot of energy to get not much energy out. And then you've got to transport the stuff. 
So the trouble with hydrogen is by the time it gets to where it's going to go to, and there are a few like buses in London run on some of them run on hydrogen. There are a few. It's it's just so inefficient that the that the um you're not doing anything at all to to help the carbon footprint. I'm afraid in our work on uh, electric vehicles, it's uh, it's not obvious either that the carbon footprint is much less with electric vehicles than it is with the internal combustion engine. And one of the things we've done, and uh, you know, we have no particular axe to grind one way or the other. But but of course, the challenge with um, electric vehicles is that you've got to produce electricity in the first place. <laughs> and uh, in most countries, it's still got 50% gas, and it probably will be for forever because we don't have enough sun, we don't have enough wind. And by the time it gets to the to the electric vehicle, you've only got something like 20 or 30% of the initial energy you put in. Because at least in an internal combustion engine, you're you're getting an efficiency of something like 85% or so. So it's it's kind of complicated. Do you it's, think that... Um, you know, it's, it, it, I've been thinking a lot about it. Do, do you think that the ESG push, which has been much stronger in Europe than anywhere in the world, um, and obviously there were some big problems in 2023 with offshore wind, that that accounts for some of the discount in some of your traditional oil and gla- gas majors? observation. That's just such a, a fantastic observation, Kieran. I mean, it is it's the challenge. And um, so, so, so if I look at Chevron Exxon, uh, they're, they're pumping most of their capex. So they're very generous to shareholders, as you know. But if you look at their capex outside what they pay off to shareholders, basically 95, 90, um, 3, 95% is goes into oil and gas, and only 7% go into renewables. And when it goes into renewables, it's really clever renewables. It's all about um, you know where it makes sense in some areas where you could do wind, and where you have where you have the whole you're fully vertically integrated. So basically, you're just somehow creating electrons to sell directly to your clients, it can make sense. The, the chance we have in Europe is, is the pressure has been so um, so significant that um, most of our oil and gas companies are probably spending about 30% of their capex on oil and gas. And and this is really, really, really difficult, Kieran, because um, the, the trouble with all of that is, is I mean, oil and gas guys know about oil and gas. And they've been doing it for years and years, and they have a pretty good idea you know, the time of the cycle to invest and they have a pretty good idea, they can judge because that's where all their experience is. But of course, oil and gas, like everybody else, is completely new to hydrogen, completely new to carbon capture. It's completely new to running wind farms and negotiating with government subsidies, completely uh, new completely new to running solar parks. And, and of course, the risk of screwing it up and getting it wrong is very, very, very high. And, and we can just about understand charging stations, electric charging stations. That'll probably work, and and that should be profitable. But offshore wind farms are really, really difficult because most of the deals, um, most of the deals will be some kind of a subsidy for six or seven or eight years, and then after that, these guys are on their own. And it's just you know we could conceivably have a real surplus of electricity six, seven, eight years time because we have both. Both traditional, you know, gas powered being invested in, plus have all the new type forms of energy, it's conceivable we could have a very significant surplus, and that um, that many of these offshore assets could actually be significantly loss making. So we've already had the first write down from BP, which is incredibly annoying, half billion write down. But our guess is, Kieran, that's the first of many. So, so what we valued BP in total. Total less because we think they've done it more sensibly. But BP, I think you can probably say that half of what they invested in will be worthless. Wow. So you've got to take that off the market cap with covenants, which there aren't, but you still get a dramatic discount against Chevron Exxon. I mean, our hope with BP is with um, with the new chief executive, 
um, they will be in about turn. Um, we put enormous pressure on them, as of many others. I mean, just to give you an idea, I'm getting very—I shouldn't be getting emotional about this, but I am because it's just annoying. Um, so, so if you look at the amount of money which um, BP invested in renewables, guess how much of their market cap they would have been able to buy back if they if they hadn't done that? No idea. It's twenty-five percent. Wow. So, so it's kind of crazy because, you know, this is stuff which, you know, we think we're pretty clever and we have the best people we can speak to who look at these projects right across the world and we're all scratching our heads you know it's not obvious that any that these these investments are going to cover their cost of capital in fact they'll wow. probably be it could even be loss making before cost of capital wow well you know i know i know you know uh energy and i'd like to get into banks a little bit because uh europe still has so many big banks but um but first could you do you mind going through technology a little bit because i think europe the conventional wisdom here in New York is that Europe doesn't have big tech. Um, I always found that a little odd, given that all these technology companies were in the U.S. were founded by people with European ancestry. And um, and there is tech in Europe, for sure. I mean, clearly, the economic powers that um, UK, Germany, they, they, they are technology leaders for hundreds of years. So um, could you talk a little bit about the state of tech? I mean, we all make our semiconductors with a technology from a Dutch company. Um, yeah. just a lot of people in the U.S. don't realize that, um, which is critical. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about the state of European tech. It's it's such an interesting question. It's it's, it's um, this is a cause of endless mystery, and I and I still can't really work it out because so 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 of course um, you go back twenty years, and the very first form of Facebook was European. The very earliest search engines were all European. The best search engine in the world at one time was a Norwegian company, which has since disappeared and gone bust. And uh, and of course, you know things like client serving, server computing, SAP, you know, whether they're first to create something for large Fortune 500 companies, and but these have been successful. They still dominate. So 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 why why is it a bigger part of the economy than than why isn't it a bigger part of the economy than it is? And um, so, so of course, the obvious things you look at are stuff like tax, tax and incentives. And again, even then, it's not obvious. Um, I mean, taxes aren't that much higher in Europe, if at all, than they are in America. It's, I mean, it may be a little bit easier to hire and fire people in America, but it's not obvious, you know, why it should have, um, why it should have so much more taken root in the US than in Europe. And and our guess is it's something to do with. Um, you know, you have one population, one language, so it's quite easy to roll out across your whole population of product. And whereas in Europe, of course, we can't do that. I mean, SAP have managed to do it, and companies, as you say, like ASML, have created a product which people can buy. But it's been, you know, search engine in Norway, it was just kind of a difficult thing to spread it across Europe because you have rules and regs, and it's hard to. So I think that must be something to do with it. And I think the other thing must be something to do with the way your education um uh, you know, your universities work in America, which have a much closer relationship with the private sector, and um, and I think that's, um, I mean, it's kind of slightly depressing, really. If you look at Oxford University and the amount of money which is spent on tech, and they think it's a great excitement that a, you know, they managed to find a hundred million to invest in a few startup tech companies, but of course, you know, that's Harvard for probably twelve hours, of, right. you know, in a day. And it's a whole year in there. So it's just, um, it's, uh, you know, the whole kind of the way that, you know, you know, closeness of kind of intellectual capital and and money 
and uh, people willing to put money into new technology, which perhaps they aren't so much here, seem to have ended up with us being kind of left behind. And we do, as you say, have some great strengths, but it's nothing compared to what you've managed to achieve. But do you think that there is, um, where do you think things are? And you do have some big companies like ST Micro, like uh, ASML, like Infineon and things like that, but uh, maybe less on the consumer tech side um, or, you know, internet, I'd say. But where are you seeing some real winners emerge? Yeah, we we got some, I mean, the the one we quite like, Kieran, is um, is SAP. And, And SAP is kind of arguably, they've been a little bit behind the curve, slow to move on to the cloud, which is what clients want. And slow to create a product which you can pick or choose at different verticals rather than getting the whole integrated thing. But our guess is that they've managed to move the tanker and they seem to be doing better than Oracle. And um, so I think that's a very reasonable company and we have a large shareholding in it. I mean, our guess is that um, most analysts haven't quite appreciated um, just how just how the fine, how the economics of moving to the cloud works, because of course cloud is spread over a period. You don't get the upfront license payments, and so when you're valuing the earnings, you've got a DCF back, you know, over however long the li- however long the, the agreement is, which of course gives you um, it gives you it, um, and then take that off the market cap, it makes it shares be quite a lot cheaper than they would kind of look optically. But of course that'll all work its way through and. And once cloud becomes a dominant source of revenues, then you'll see it up there in the numbers. And that's right. in the process of happening. The other area, of course, is all around semiconductors. And again, this is another mystery to us because, you know, my wife is Dutch and we know a lot of people who work for ASML. How the hell have they managed to do it? Well, they had one focus. It came out of Philips. But what is extraordinary is um, ASML is in a little, near a little, little town called Eindhoven. And most of the employees there are graduates of Eindhoven University, but somehow it works and they've managed to create a product and they've they've been able to master the new, the technology race. And, you know, the Japanese have been left behind and that's kind of really surprising and interesting. The other area, of course, you mentioned is Infineon and ST Micro and Soytech. And, um, and also we have a quite interesting company, Soytech, which has developed, um, as it were, an enhanced version of silicon, silicon, which is um, much less battery draining, very useful for using in mobile telephones. And uh, where they have a kind of they have a more monopolistic position, but it's kind of few and far between. I'm afraid it's few and far between. Well, how about banks? Do you mind going through banks because I think they're not only cheap. Um, you know, we in full disclosure, we own some European banks as well at Old Farm. And um, what struck me, I mean, they they have the same rate environment that we do in the U.S. and Europe, and but but they um, they're not only cheaper, but they pass on. Those higher rates less so than um, than the Amer- their American counterparts, and so thus their earning their earnings are extraordinary at the moment. So maybe you could tell us what you think about yeah. European banks. Well, I think there are two. I mean, two or three things I think which um, maybe three important things which many people and understandably, particularly if you're if you're looking at American banks, perhaps haven't don't fully appreciate. And the first is, um, when our banking system is kind of unusual in that it's basically defunded funded by current account surpluses and deposits. So current account surplus, it could be, I could have like 500 pounds, 1,000 pounds in my current account, and I could have a deposit, it might be 5,000 pounds, 10,000 pounds, something like that. There'll be some corporate corporate deposits. There's not much securitization of lending. There's some, but there's not really very much. There'll be a bit of wholesale funding and there'll be equity. So of course, um, what happens is when interest rates go down, you know, the cost of funding basically stays flat because your biggest cost of funding is interest is current accounts, which don't ever pay anything. It could be like 25%, 30% of the liability side of your balance sheet. And uh, But the benefit, of course, is aid rates move higher. 
then um, then the cost of funding doesn't rise. There's a little bit of pressure on deposit accounts, particularly large, like £20,000. And if you want to leave your money in for three months, six months a year, you're going to get a quite a decent rate. But that's a very small part of the balance sheet. So it all feeds through. And, and then, of course, the obvious question is, well, why don't, why isn't there not more pressure? And, and, and of course, there's not more pressure because people want into instant access. You know, if they have a deposit account, it might be one or two thousand pounds, five thousand pounds, but they want to get their money back within a day's notice, something like that. And, and of course, if, you know, if you're going to offer that, then you, you don't have to you don't have to give much of an interest rate. Um, but the biggest chunk is just current account where you don't pay anything, and and there isn't really a demand for it because people want you know it's very flexible money in and out. It's a small amount of money, so it doesn't um, consumers aren't really. It's not something they really pay any attention to. So I think that's really, really important. This fixed rate of funding, this rates rise, it really moves all through the bottom line. I think for me, the second thing, which is um, which is really, really interesting, is our banks are generally, now this is very controversial, but our banks are generally better capitalized than US banks. So whatever way you look at it, um, most of our banks are something like a CET1 of 13, 14, 15, 16%. And as far as we can understand it, I mean, I know there are different ways of adjusting for it in the U.S., but the U.S. banks are something near to 10, 11, 12 percent, something like that. Then if we look at leverage ratios, also European banks appear to be stronger. And if you look at things like liquidity, European banks, again, they, they appear to have a, a bigger coverage of um, of the kinds of loans which they could be or the kinds of which or the kinds of deposits which could be um, uh, which could be immediately withdrawn. There's a there's a great amount of cash in the, in the asset side of the balance sheet. So I think that's really, really important too. I guess the last thing is this, um, just this whole process of kind of cost cutting and digitalization, which many have been really very skeptical about. And, um, and it's a really big deal because of course, over here, we have quite high property costs. And, and if you can move your clients onto the app, and if you can close down a branch, and if you can just, and if you can even do things like mortgage discussions on on Zoom, then that's uh, you're saving an awful lot of money. And then if you can start to use the, the app in a way where you can sell other products too, it's a very cheap way of being able to sell things like insurance or other savings products. So, so, so our guess is that um, I mean the way we've done it is we've just gone for the strongest and best banks. So the ones which have 20% market shares like Lloyd's or like Intesa San Paolo, those kinds of banks are really the strongest of the strongest. Because there, of course, you have the most um, you amortization of your cost base, the best opportunity to amortize your cost base. And our guess is most of these companies should be steady state making 15, 16% returns on capital. And Why so high? But they're the strongest and biggest. So they should be making two or three hundred base points more than the competition. They and do you, Stuart, is it is it like a turn in the road, this rate environment change? Because I mean, I, I've looked at Unicredit, for instance, in, in Italy, it was the leading bank there. And uh, you know, they had a big year last year, but on a 20-year chart, I couldn't even see the move. You know, it was so small. Hey, I know. Well, we're so with you in that, Karen. We think um we think the valuations are just, in our view, just nuts. And um I mean, the difficulty, I mean, it's such, such so interesting with the question you raised because, you know, why is it? Why have they not moved up more? Because, you know, everything people like me talked about and yourself, you know, this thing of rates moving higher, it all going down to the bottom line, you know, the cost cutting, the, the there being no more need to to rebuild balance sheets further because we're already way above the kind of the harshest, you know, Basel IV, Basel IV rules. Why haven't, they, why haven't they gone up to discount, um, at least gone up to their book values? 
And because they should be able to cover their cost of capital, and of course, the best like, like UniCredit or Intesa should be able to do 200, 300 basis points sustainably above their cost of capital. I mean, that's what happens in a capitalistic system if you're dominant. And our guess, and this leads us to a really interesting question, our guess is it's all around, um, it's a question of NPLs. It's a question around credit defaults. So so we think um, we think deposit beaters will will gradually move higher, but that's all in our numbers and expected. Even at the maximum point, it'll mean that net um, interest margins are substantially wider than they were when interest rates were very low. So we think that's all fine. We think fee income is fine and all that. And maybe with the investment banks, maybe a little bit lower um, as we have less M&A to have to. But again, that's all kind of fine and you predict that. The big, big question is around MPLs. And, and we have a slightly different view than many on this. I mean, you will read all the research reports and they're talking about, particularly in the US, a sharp uptick in defaults. So so we think it's unlikely in residential mortgages in the UK. And for the for the obvious reason that um, the loan to values are now under 50%, it's a completely different market to what it was around about 2000 or even in 2007, 2008, a completely different market. And we haven't seen any pickup in, uh, in defaults uh, with um, you know high interest rates and with the cost of living and all that. Credit cards, cyclical. Again, we think they'll Credit card defaults will pick up a bit, but again, we our guess is that most of the credit new credit card defaults are going to be coming from uh, challenger banks like Virgin and Metro and the others. So the big question is on corporates, and our guess is that this time round, the really big defaults are unlikely to be in the banking system. They're more likely to be in private equity, and with wealthy individuals and in the insurance industry. So some of the craziest lending we think has happened has been in technology and startups, and leveraged finance. And that's something which the banking industry is not really involved in anymore. Deutsche Bank will have a little bit, but it'll be tiny. It'll be basis points of balance sheet. The rest of the banking system has basically exited all that kind of, we'd say, clever kind of merchant bank, investment banking type of finance. So so we think there are some really nasty defaults which are waiting in the insurance industry. Because insurance industry have been buying some of this very clever, you know, whether it's medicine debt or this or that, something yielding a little bit more of being a little bit more clever. And our guess is that's where the really, really nasty defaults will come. And of course, CRE is the other area. Right. But 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 CRE is um, European CRE. We don't have any of the stresses like you have in the US. I mean, of course, there's the effect of people working at home more. So there could be some. Um, there's the effect of shopping malls. But again, it's a very small part of balance sheets. It's not like in the US where you have the regionals with a very large chunk in in kind of shopping mall type finance. You know, I want to get a little bit into how you build a uh, multi-billion dollar firm and the culture, but the last thing I just, on the investment side and theme side of things, I'd love to understand a little bit better, um, you know, because you say right off the bat that it's an old economy, uh, viewed more old economy in Europe. Do you think that we're switching a little bit Are the, the because uh, globalization is we're we're not exactly in a deglobalization phase, but it's certainly receding. Do you yeah. think that that's that just broadly should benefit Europe combined with a very low valuation? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a that's a really big deal. That I mean, it's so difficult to measure, and we try to find examples of it, and it's kind of hard. You can find the obvious ones with the various Trump tariffs when he was president that were introduced, but people lost business. But it's quite difficult beyond that. Um, I mean, our guess is that maybe it's even more basic, simple than that, is that, um, you know, we had an extraordinary environment of quite fast growth, consumer spending, and very low interest rates. And of course, that that really flatters the valuation of consumer-facing stocks. And now we're going to an environment where the consumer spending is not quite as buoyant as it was, and uh, interest rates are higher. So you have uh, downgrades in your numbers, plus you're discounting your interest rate fact. 
is a lot higher. So if you look at something like, um, like I don't know, Nike or could be Adidas in Europe, I mean, these are companies which had a very nice growth rate. Of course, the growth rate now has slowed down dramatically, and the cost of you know their discounting factor on their earnings has gone up. So, I mean, the shares have been deteriorated, but we don't think like anything like enough. And of course, the flip side of all of that is our metal and mining stocks. I mean, it should be the environment for these companies. I mean, they should flourish at a time when, um, you know, when we've had a period of starved investment and where the overall economic growth remains reasonable. I mean, our guess is that that's where the earnings surprises will happen and the earnings disappointments will continue to be in in consumer-facing stocks. I, I, I see it too. Right, let's see. Um, you know, I, I'd love to understand, you know, you're, you've uh, survived a few big cycles and you're one of the bigger, uh, you know, absolute return firms in London. And I'd love to understand a little bit more how you build a culture. I mean, you talked a bit about research and how it's important and taking emotion out. But, you know, I noticed over the years, you put out a lot of research and you put a lot of your analysts and other portfolio managers' names on it. And uh, can you talk a little bit about how you build a firm with uh, where where finding great ideas is primary? We're, we're, yeah, we're, I don't know whether we got it right or not, but so certainly, I think it's a nice place to work, and there's a good atmosphere, and people love what they do, and and they kind of throw themselves into projects. And I think, I think how we've maybe been a little bit more successful than other people. Well, we have the we have the privilege of being a you know partnership, so we're not uh, we don't have a board who's kind of making who's skewering us, making our lives miserable. So we can really, um, you know, we can um, you know we can think very carefully about and, and the long term and how we how we give us to create the best possible environment. So so what we've done here is a bit unusual, is um, so we've tried to pull together um, a group of people that have known each other for many, many years, decades now, who really respect each other and where, you know, individually they think they have extraordinary expertise. So you're going to be quite shocked out of a team of eight of us, six of us have now worked for 30, 35 years together. Wow. And... Um, so Christina, Julian, and I worked back at Morgan Grenfell um, in the earliest days when we left university, and we've been one way or the other together ever since then. Um, the other analysts, um, they were on the sell side, so they're working for large brokerage firms. Pascal, for example, was perhaps the best known um, you know, growth company analyst, um, certainly in France and in, in Europe. Um, Piers was a very well-respected German analyst. So we, we pulled in people that we worked with very closely for the last 35 years, brought them into our company. And uh, and I think that's a real strength. The more junior, well, I say junior ones, Lucas is very senior, but he's only been with us for 10 or 11 years, which is quite a short time. And uh, and um, he's kind of our freshest blood and and has all sorts of great input and, and areas where he has an expertise. And then we have one new guy, Dom, who just started with us. He did, we were very strange in how we do things. He did a year internship to make sure he was happy with us and we were happy with him. And then we offered him a full-time job. So, so I think there are benefits of that. I mean, of course, there are risks as well. We could be getting a little bit too sleepy. We could be because we've all worked together so well. But I think the benefits, in my view, really outweigh the risks. And because we've all done it for so long, we have a very long-term perspective. You know, we don't get too panicked about share prices up and down. So that comes to our thing of writing the really in-depth research because we we get something right. Our view is that we're going to make four or five or six or seven times in the shares. So if you remember, Kieran, when we bought the um, shipping companies, we did a great deal of work. And I think in Maersk, in the end, we made seven times our money. When we've made a bit of money in the banks. We've made two or three times. But our guess is they'll probably double again before we get to the end of this bull market. 
and um, and the oil and gas companies. We haven't made as much money as we hope. We've done very well on the drillers. We've made two or three times in the drillers. We've made a bit of money in the oil, on the on the majors. But our guess is that Noble Corporation will double again, and our guess is that Total and BP will double again to get back to a fair normal valuation. So for us, it's worth it to spend months doing the super in-depth work and speaking to all sorts of experts across the world if we think we can make five or six or seven times afterwards. Wow. I mean, I, I totally understand that. Um, I wish I had that patience as well to uh, spend that kind of time and be there at the right time. It's a very interesting backdrop for Europe. It is um, because not only I still feel sentiment, I'm sure you feel it too, right? When you come to America, that sentiment is like, well, why would I own Europe? Is that right? Accurate? And it's yet you have the valuation yeah. on your side, right? And you have potentially some real catalysts. Is that accurate? It's, it's yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, some of it is kind of true. I mean, at the end of the day, it is a bit harder to do business in Europe and it costs more to lay people off. And um, But there are benefits of that too. You know, you can get a productivity is generally quite high, particularly in France and Germany. So it's it's a very, very difficult one. Taxis, I'm not sure that much higher in Europe than they are because there are all sorts of special deals in different regions. So so I think it's a, it's a more level playing field than you think. I mean, our guess also is that, um, I mean, saying this as a European is that it's, I mean, for France and Germany, this is just the linchpin. You know, they've been, you know, most most French people, German people, Dutch people, you know, either it's their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. There have been tanks rolling over their lawns. They have ancestors who fought and died for their country. It's This is a really, really, really big deal for us. And um, so we think it's um, we think it's still got legs. I mean, the big question is whether we can get, as we very... Interestingly, I'll say whether we can get further integration. I mean, my guess is the back of Ukraine, the back of COVID, the recovery fund. I think it's likely will be we should be able to move a bit more closely together than we have been and solidify the whole project further. Well, Stuart, absolutely great. I think you uh, you did a great job, and I really appreciate walking through these ideas. Um, it's a very interesting area and uh, you're one of the survivors and thrivers in yeah, London. Yeah, one of so. the very few survivors. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> wonderful to speak with you about this and uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to the Thematic Investors Podcast powered by Vidrio Financial. With Vidrio Financial, asset managers, endowments and foundations, pensions, family offices, insurance plans, and sovereign wealth funds can cut through the complexity of asset allocation to reduce costs, mitigate portfolio risk, optimize compliance controls, and improve performance analytics. Interested to learn more? Contact us today at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vidrio Financial and or our host, Kieran Cavada. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding investment planning.